I'd like to go straight into the word. If you can, uh, draw your attention to 2 Kings chapter 20. We're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 20, and we're going to read the first uh, few verses of 2 Kings chapter 20, and we're going to dig right in as we continue our series on prayer works. So I'm going to read the first verse, and then we're going to get right into it, fam. Let's do it. It says this in verse 1, if you're there. Give you another minute just to get settled in as we engage in the word. Um, but we're going to look at verse 1. And this is what it says in verse one. It says, in those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die and not live. Then he returned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord saying, remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord. You shall go up to the house of the Lord. Let's pray to get started. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the incredible privilege you've given us to come together in your word. Father, I just pray that in this moment, I just pray that you would just be with us, Lord God. Guide us and lead us in this time, Lord, as we engage in your word. Father, we pray for revelation, but we pray, Lord, that you would give us, um, Lord, guidance and direction. We pray for conviction where conviction is needed. We pray for correction where correction is needed. We pray, Lord God, for wisdom where wisdom is needed. Father, have your way. Do as you please, Lord, in this time as we engage in your word. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen and amen. We uh, are continuing our series on prayer works, and I felt it necessary to go to a story that's very common. There's a commonality to this story for many people who have read it. You've, you're familiar with the story of Hezekiah and his life being extended, and this is what we see in this particular portion of text. In verse 6, it, it says, as we continue, he says, And I will add to your days 15 years, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of, of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. That was the last verse. And I felt it necessary to read that because maybe it will jog your memory. However, what really jogs my memory and what kind of triggers me when I read it is when we go back to um, uh, a prior verse, when Hezekiah responds to this seemingly death, the seeming death sentence. And in response to the death sentence, the scriptures tell us that Hezekiah puts his face prostrate before the Lord in prayer, prostrate before the Lord in prayer. It triggers me because I remember what it meant to have your face on the wall. When I was in uh, elementary school, when I was in probably early, no, not early middle school, but at least in elementary school and particularly in preschool, I was a problem child. So much of a problem child that I was familiar with having my face stuck on the wall. And anytime, you know, 
you know, you, you either blurted out or whatever it was that you said. I was just a, I was, I was all kinds of problems. And so, of course, the response was at that time was to put me in the corner or to put my face on the wall. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that kind of punishment, but that was the normal thing for me. I heard that's not allowed nowadays. Like, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Apparently, that's abuse. So, apparently, I was abused. Um, I don't know. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But I do remember that. And it triggered me because I remember being so familiar with the wall. I would see, like, all the cracks and the crevices on the wall. And I just start thinking about them. I start using my imagination. The time when your face is on the wall is really a time of introspection and a time of reflection, even for a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, and probably going as far as 10 years old. All right, Ellison, don't listen to that because you can't be that kind of child. But anyway, that was the kind of child that I was. And so I was a problem child, and it kind of triggered me because the one thing that I remember is that my time in the wall, yes, it was a time of punishment, but it was also a time of reflection. And I find myself here seeing Hezekiah in this story and, and, and seeing the parallel between what had transpired in Hezekiah's life and what had transpired in my early elementary school life. We see the story of Hezekiah's life being extended. And there's so many mysteries about this, this story. There's so many questions about the story. But if I can, just for a moment, at least introduce you to Hezekiah. If you go just two chapters before, in chapter 18, we're introduced to Hezekiah in chapter 18. At this time, Israel was split into two kingdoms. You had Israel that was up in the north. We called it the nation of Israel. And then you had the nation of Judah in the south. Hezekiah became the king of Judah in the south at the age of 25 to King Ahaz and to Zechariah's daughter, Abi. Um, and we see that in verse 1 and verse 2 in chapter 18. Um, Ahaz was known for his evil, much like many of the kings that preceded Ahaz. They were known for their idol worship. They were known for their paganism. They were known for their evil acts and evil deeds. But what the scriptures tell us is that Hezekiah was distinct from the others. Hezekiah was a little bit different than the others. Not just a little bit different, sorry. He was profoundly different from the others. In chapter 3, sorry, in, in in verse 3, it says, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father David had done. This is the distinction now that Hezekiah has between all the kings that preceded him. In verse 4, it said that he removed the high places, and he broke the sacred pillars, and he cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made. All the remnants of idol worship, all the remnants of servitude to these pagan idols, idols were destroyed by Hezekiah. Hezekiah was apart. He was set apart from the other kings. Nine years after Hezekiah's reign, after Hezekiah became king, Hosea, who was uh, the king of the northern region, that is the nation of Israel, Hosea, who was the king, was invaded by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians had eventually overtaken Samaria and had eventually taken Israel captive, sending the Israelites away to the nation of Assyria. The scriptures tell us exactly why the nation of Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians. They were taken captive as we see in verse 12. It says that they were taken captive in verse 12 because they did not obey the voice of their God, but transgressed his covenant 
and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them. So because of their disobedience to God, because of their disobedience to God's will and to God's precepts, for which they had even had the blessings in the first place, because of the disobedience, God had allowed them to be overtaken by the Assyrians. Now, of course, on the south side, you still have got the nation of Judah. And it was five years after that captivity, after, after the Assyrians had taken over, five years later, Sennacherib, who was now the king of Assyria, um, he came now to invade Judah. Hezekiah now, thinking strategically, he believes, hey, I can maybe hold off these guys if I pay a tribute to them. So Hezekiah, of course, was down and out. And so what he did was, is in order to keep them from coming in and taking over, Hezekiah went and paid a tribute to the, na- to, to, to the Assyrians. But what did he use to pay them? Well, he had to actually strip the gold off of the doors from the temple in order to pay them, but he tried to pay them off in order to keep them from coming in and and overtaking the nation of Judah. But even after he received the payment, Sennacherib still came back anyway. And Sennacherib came to, 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 to ask for Judah. He came to take over Judah, to overtake the nation, and for Hezekiah to turn over the nation. In chapter 19, if you go further down now, is that Hezekiah now, in his distress, Hezekiah, in his mourning, calls on Isaiah the prophet. And when he calls on Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah then responds by hearing a word from God and telling him what he must do. This is what it says. In chapter 19, verse 6, it says, And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which I, which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. This is the promise that was given now, that Isaiah had received revelation that um, Hezekiah would be victorious over Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, by the work of the Lord alone. Fast forward now, in, in verse 35 in the same chapter, if you fast forward now, we're getting closer and closer, but in verse 35, we see the nature of Sennacherib's defeat. It says in verse 35, and it came to pass that uh, on a certain night, that the angel of the Lord came and it and he killed, the angel of the Lord killed the camp of the Assyrians. 185,000 soldiers were killed. And, and so in the morning, when Sennacherib woke up, he found all the corpses on the ground. They were all killed. Defeated, Sennacherib then goes back to, to Assyria. And in his return to Assyria, while he is worshiping, he's assassinated. And so the story ends just as it was prophesied. The story ends just as it was promised. Hezekiah has been victorious. And then we go now, pay very close attention, from verse 37 now to chapter 20, a verse later, verse 1. He goes from victory, and then the story shifts to disease. In those days, it says in verse 1, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, again, Isaiah returns in the story, the son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, what? And said to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order 
for you shall die and not live. Hezekiah goes from finding himself in a place of victory now to find himself in a life or death situation. Hezekiah finds himself in vibrant life and victory to now being told it's time for you to go to hospice. Mm-hmm. How did we get here? I think it's one of the questions that, 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 that if, you, if you read this and you read this attentively, you have to ask yourself the question, how did we get here? How did we get from a place of victory to now a place of sickness unto death? I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to that answer. I'm, I'm, I'm intending on getting to that answer. But for now, all we need to acknowledge is that Hezekiah is in a difficult situation. He finds himself in a precarious situation. And his response in the situation is to put his face toward the wall. Ooh, that takes me back. He puts his face towards the wall. There are some prayers that we pray. That when we find ourselves in a situation so dire that we can't even share it with anybody else. There's some circumstances and some situations that we find ourselves in that go beyond our ability to even articulate. There are some stuff that we go through that is so dark and so low that it makes us feel like we can't even connect with anybody else. There's some prayers that we pray in some dark situations that cannot incorporate collaboration or cooperation. There's some situations that you may find yourself in, and I'm here to preach to some people who may find themselves in a circumstance or may find themselves in a situation to say, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this, and I don't even know how to share it with somebody else. I I don't even know how to articulate it to anybody else. I I, I don't even know how to have somebody else participate in, with, with me in this. There's not a word, not a thing anybody else can say. There's some people who can find themselves in dire situations where this moment in my life cannot be shared with anybody else. He 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 looked at the wall. He didn't he didn't look towards other people. He didn't look to connect with anybody else, but he looked towards the wall because there was no one to look to in the midst of this moment. And yet some of the greatest things can happen in that moment of isolation where you find yourself unable really to even ask for participation. Hezekiah is in a life or death situation. In the same way as a child, I found that being stuck at the wall made me think about a lot of things. Some of the greatest reflections can happen when your face is on the wall. Some of the greatest things can happen when your face is pointed directly to the wall because at the wall, there's no distraction. At the wall, there's no one to look. There's no one to look to, to turn towards. There's no one to distract you. All you've got at that moment is just you and that small sliver of space between you and that wall. And it is in that space that we can have an encounter and to meet with God. I came to talk to somebody who's going through a dead situation, who's going through a life or death situation, you're asking yourself, how am I going to get out of this? And I came to tell you today that there's revelation on the wall. 
I want you to put in the chat right now, there's revelation in the wall. I want you to put in the chat right now, God wants to reveal to you something that's happening in your wall. And I want to talk to somebody who feels like they've hit a wall, who doesn't have anybody to go to, anyone to turn to, anyone to look towards. I came to tell you that there's revelation when, you're, when your mind, when your, 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 your face is stuck on the wall. We know how the story ends. God, of course, he prays, and we just read it just now. He prays. God stops Isaiah as Isaiah is leaving the house. He stops Isaiah, tells Isaiah to turn back and to tell to Hezekiah and to speak to Hezekiah and to say that he has added 15 years. I want you to put in the chat real quick. Prayer works. We see here in the story this evidence of prayer working. Prayer works. For those of you right now who are asking the question of whether or not prayer works, this is a testimony that prayer works. Uh -huh. Prayer works. We've talked about before that prayer works not as you may have thought it, but prayer always works. But I, I came to also testify to you that prayer works. Something happened here when Hezekiah prayed. Yeah, something happened when Hezekiah prayed. But this particular exchange is mysterious in nature. I would argue to you that this is one of the most mysterious exchanges in the Bible. One where Hezekiah is prophesied. I mean, just think about this for a moment. Okay, think about this for a moment. Hezekiah is prophesied to. He's told that he's about to die. Then Hezekiah prays. After Hezekiah prays, it would seem as if what God said would happen did not transpire. It would seem that God has changed his mind. Ooh, this is one of the great theological debates and discussions. People have argued this back and forth to ask the question of how is it that God would change his mind? I mean, that's hard for us to think about, right? Because in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, it says, For I am God, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. God even says to you that he is a God that never changes. The scriptures tell us that he is the alpha, he is the omega, he is the beginning, he is the end, that he does not change. Not only does God not change, but God doesn't change his will. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, he says, declaring from the end and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. God stands by his word. And yet the word here would seem to me as if it's changed. And yet what happens in this text, if you would just allow me just to, to really reflect on this for a moment, but what happens is, in this text is it would seem that what God said did not happen. How? How does a God who does not change, change his mind? How did this work? How is this possible? Can God change his mind? There are many of us who are trying to make sense of this. 
Theologians have tried to make sense of this. And some of us are trying to understand the parameters by which God would seem to change his mind. Was God saying what he said? Did he mean what he said? Or did he not mean what he said? Was he trying to do something else? What was God trying to do? And so we find ourselves in this mystery. We find ourselves in this mysterious portion of scripture. It is confusing for many of us when we look at it from our perspective and from our purview. What happened here? What are the parameters? How is it that God would change his mind? How is it possible that God would change his mind? It doesn't make sense. And because it doesn't make sense, we find ourselves stuck because our logic and our reasoning and the way we go about processing what we see in the text, it just doesn't coincide, doesn't align, it doesn't connect. And so we find ourselves in a mystery. And for many of us, Because we find ourselves in this mystery, we get stuck in the mystery. We won't move until we have the mystery figured out. Mm. We, we, We won't move until we know the parameters by which it works. Uh Uh, We, we won't make it. We won't, we won't pray until we know how prayer works. Uh huh. We 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 see the result of it, but I'm not ready to move yet until I know how it happened. What was the parameter? What was the connection? What was the purpose? Why did it happen? And I find that that's the reason why a lot of Christians don't pray is because a lot of Christians fall into the paralysis of analysis. You're too busy trying to analyze the parameters of your prayer that you don't realize that you don't need to know how it works. You just need to know that it does work. There are many of us who get stuck waiting on the how when it already works. You're waiting on the how, but the reality is, is that the how doesn't matter. The how doesn't matter. How many hows do you need before you actually do it? Because you may know how and knowing how won't change what you actually do. You have to learn to dwell in not knowing and to dwell in the mystery of it all. To know that there are those who pray and, and are healed and that there are those who pray that aren't necessarily healed and that there are those who pray and get a breakthrough. And there are those who don't pray, but uh, who pray and don't get a breakthrough. But if you understand that if it worked for some, then it can work for me. And I don't need to know the parameter. I don't need to know how it works. I'm, all I got to know is that there was a man who heard a word from God that he was going to die. He put his face on a wall and he pleaded with the Lord. And for some reason, what was told to him did not happen. It worked. You won't be comfortable with prayer until you are comfortable residing in the mystery. And for many of us, we are so stuck in trying to make the secret make sense when we don't realize that in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, he says that the secrets of God belong to God. God wants us to pray because God wants us to dwell in the mystery. Stop waiting for the parameter. Know that it works. You will have a testimony one day to say, I don't know why he did it. And I don't know how he did it. But my God, I am glad that he did. You know what's funny? It's funny to me how when it comes to the matters of the spirit, we don't want to live in mystery. But when it comes to everything else, we're okay with it. Want proof? Do you know how a car works? Do you know how an engine works? 
Do you know all the parameters of all the stuff that's happening in your ABS brake system? And yet, even though you don't know everything that makes it do what it does, you know that when you sit in it, put the key in the ignition, and you turn it, the car starts, and it moves. You don't know how a car works, but you'll drive in it anyway. You don't know how an airplane works, but you will get in it anyway. You don't know how a lot of things work in your life, but you will do it anyway because you know it works. And yet when it comes to the matter of prayer, we get stuck. I need to know how it works in order to pray. Has anybody ever tried to figure out how Google worked to use it? And yet you use it because you know it works. And for many of us, we won't move until we know that it works. This is the confusing part in the mystery of this scripture. The mystery of the scripture, as we read it here, is that we see it, and because we're looking at it from the wrong perspective, allow me to teach for a second. Because we look at it from the wrong perspective, we think that this story is a story of God changing his mind. And so we make all the questions about God changing his mind. What if I would submit to you that this story is not a story about God changing his mind, but rather this is a story about the trajectory of a man's life changing. Mm -hmm. man, this man's life changed as a result of this encounter. This man's life was changed as a result of this exchange. Because of this exchange, this man changed. And this man, because he had encountered and engaged with God, his life was transformed. I'm being reminded that in the same way that this man's life changed, because we see a change in what was written on this man's life, mankind's trajectory also changed as what was written and told concerning mankind's trajectory. The scriptures tell us from the beginning in Genesis chapter 2 that if they ate of the fruit that they would surely die, that it was already proclaimed upon them that they would die. But for some reason, the way it started wasn't the way that it ended. What was proclaimed on them, it didn't transpire that way. The scriptures tell us that where they had experienced death, there was one who came and interceded to change the very trajectory of their life. Life. The scriptures tell us that in the same way that it didn't end for his, uh, that that it did not end for of uh, 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 Hezekiah is the same way that it didn't end for us because the scriptures say where the first Adam became a living being in First Corinthians chapter fifteen verse forty five it tells us that the life the last Adam became a, became a life giving spirit God will change the trajectories of a man's life he will change the trajectory of a woman's life he will change the trajectory of your life because while death may have been proclaimed over your life, Jesus comes in and he changes it and he turns it into life. Yeah. I want you to put in the chat prayer works. I'm going to leave you with a closing thought. This is a peculiar story. It's a peculiar story because for many of us, we read it and we think that it's about God changing his mind. But I think the most peculiar part of this text is when we see the shift in the narrative from verse 37 
in chapter 19, the last verse of chapter 19, when Sennacherib is assassinated in his own temple of worship, and it shifts immediately to chapter 20, Hezekiah is sick and near death. That's weird to me. It's weird to me because it seems that there's a lot that must have happened in between those two things. Yes, we see now in verse 20, it says, In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. I'm sorry, I know we're just online, so I would go into full preach mode right now because I get all excited. I can get all riled up about this kind of stuff. But let me bring you to something real quick, and I want you to think very, very intently about this, okay? And I want you to ask this question. What happened in between verse 37, chapter 19, verse 37, and chapter 20, verse 1? What happened between the time Senate Cherub is assassinated and Hezekiah gets sick? I love the Bible. Because you can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 32. And 2 Corinthians chapter 32 actually gives us the answer. Just go there for a second. In 2 Corinthians chapter 32, if you would allow me, it tells us in, um, it tells us in verse 24. Take a look. We see the story one more time. Except here, it's kind of like a cliff note version. Okay? It's just a short little, little boop. Stick it in real quick. And it says this. Verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah was sick. We just read that. And near death. And he prayed to the Lord. And he spoke to him and gave him a sign. Verse 25. But Hezekiah, look at this now. But Hezekiah, did not repay according to the favor shown him. For his heart was lifted up. Therefore, the wrath was looming over him. So Hezekiah didn't get randomly sick. Hezekiah wins a victory that he never fought. The angel of the Lord defeats the Assyrians. The Assyrian king is assassinated in his own temple. Hezekiah gets to enjoy the fruit of the victory that God had given him. And yet, the great sin of Hezekiah is that he chose not to repay according to the favor that was shown him. Hezekiah failed to acknowledge the beauty of what God had already done in his life. It makes me think for a second, and I know some of you might think might be thinking, well then, so God punished him by sentencing him to death? Well, this is easy. We can just, can we just have a conversation real quick? If God was punishing him to sentence him to death, then he would just die. <laughs> or what if God was getting his attention when Isaiah showed up into his home? have a little conversation. After a victory he didn't win, he got to enjoy a privilege of the work that God had done over his life. And because 
he failed to acknowledge the work of the Lord, it's easy for us who forget the benefits of Christ and who forget the benefits of God and forget what God has done in our life. And when we find ourselves in a place where we forget what God has done in our life, you know what we do? We start thinking we get the credit for it. I got myself here. I worked hard. I put the work in. I was hustling. It was my work for getting the benefits of God and the grace of God over your life to get you to where you are. The scriptures tell us right there in the verse itself, it tells us that Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him for his heart was lifted up. Quite simply, it said he became prideful. Hezekiah became prideful, and in his pride, it created a distance between him and God. Hezekiah, between the last verse in 19 and the first verse in 20, needed a change of heart. In verse 20, so, 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 so Hezekiah, because of where he was at in heart, was brought to a circumstance in a situation that would only draw him back to the presence of God. What if the life or death situation that you're in is an invitation from God to come back to his presence in prayer? What if God was never sentencing you to death, he was getting your attention? What if God was getting your attention, drawing you back into his presence and telling you, yeah, your marriage is falling apart. Come back to me in prayer. Yeah, your finances are falling apart. Come back to me in prayer. Stop looking to your friends. Stare at the wall. Spend time with me at the wall. Engage with me at the wall. What if it is your pride that's got you in the situation that you're in and now you're being presented with an incredible opportunity to return back into my presence in the midst of the trial. What if the suffering of this present time is so that the glory of God can be revealed? And that is exactly what happened. Hezekiah humbles himself. Look at verse 26. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. This scripture is actually not about God changing his mind. This scripture is about Hezekiah changing his mind. And what if right now you're praying for God to give you a breakthrough at the wall? And you find yourself at the wall. And what God is saying is, if you repent, he said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. What if this life or death situation that you're in, prayer is working, but this prayer that you're doing at the wall is actually God's invitation for you to repent. What if your time, your situation that you're in right now, God's saying, I'm here to prune you, to correct some things in you. 
He says, do not consider it strange when you encounter these fiery trials. Why? Because it's meant to purify you so that you will come out and come forth as gold. This is not about God changing his mind because you prayed. This is about God changing your heart because he brought you to pray. So today we're going to say prayer works. Because the same prayer that brought Hezekiah to repentance that the Lord added 15 years was actually the Lord ordaining it from the beginning so that Hezekiah would be restored in him. Let us all be restored in him because the Lord that we serve had already changed the trajectory of our lives. When we were sentenced to death, he came to die. He died in our place so that we didn't have to suffer death. He gave us an extension of life and he gave us that extension of life through him in him was the life and the light of all men. So today, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the moments in our life that draw us to the wall. We thank you for the moments in our life that bring us to a place where we can't lean on anybody else, but we have to lean on you. Father, I ask, Lord, for anybody right now who's hit a wall, who's in a season in their life where they've hit a wall, Father, I just pray right now, Lord, that you would draw them to you. Lord, that they would see you and hear from you that they would receive conviction and be drawn back to you. Take us back, Lord God, each and every one of us. Convict us, correct us where we need to be corrected, that we may glorify you in all that we do. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.